Welcome everyone to Theology and Insanity, your weekly Catholic podcast on all things theology, philosophy, culture, politics, you, you name it. We've, we've talked about just about everything here. As always, I'm Dave Van Vickle, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Mike Cirilla. Mike, how's it going? It's going great, Dave. How are you today? Good. You just, you're just coming off a little vacation, kind yeah. of vacation. I mean, yeah, you were yeah. working while you were there, but yeah. That's right. And uh, kids are always a oh, joy yeah, right. and, a, and a yeah. task, you know, but yeah. Yeah, I remember my parents used to always say that they like they would say like we've never been on a vacation because they've always worked the entire time. Right, know? right, cleaning up yeah. and everything. Yeah. What about you? Are you going to get to go on a vacation at all this summer? I I, I doubt it. We you yeah. know um, just with everything with Amber yeah. and her yeah. medical needs, I you know we, I I won't be able to leave. But I think the kids are going to go down to my family's in Texas and uh, my you know my parents you know have the pool and the cousins all live nearby and you know so they're always together and everything like that so right. so that'll be great and well and prayers my, we're all praying for for amber yeah thank you her thank health you. and all you guys the uh yeah and finally the weather here in pittsburgh i don't know i'm sure it's similar in Steubenville. finally we're, we're like it's not so much rain it's like yeah. super nice it's great yeah. so it is great so, thank god yeah, it's been nice and we don't have cicadas this year <laughs> we, we drove down to north carolina we drove through the dc area and they had the 17 year yeah. cicadas which was a blast of memory from the past i yeah when i graduated high school in 1987 the 17 year cicadas were out and i was in in the dc area and the 17 year cicadas were out so this is Two seventeen-year cycles yeah. after that—that's right. That's getting old, baby. I, I, I mean, it is—it's crazy when you see the pictures. I—I I never dreamed that you know. I mean, I've never experienced it. So that's you know, when people post pictures on Facebook and stuff like that, it's nuts. Yeah, we're driving on the belt on the Beltway, and then on ninety-five with the with the windows open because um, the transmission blew. That's a whole other story. Oh no! Um, you know, at least part of it, part it partly blew. Yeah. Uh, we could still drive in third gear, uh, but but the cicadas <laughs> were flying back and forth, you know. And, and so we had to close the windows, but but it just reminded me, I, I you know I have been through now three seventeen year cycles of, of those cicadas, <laughs> so I'm an old, I'm getting, I'm old. Yeah, you're it's ready great. for it. I love it. it. I love it. So uh, yeah, you'll be like the guy who's like saying to his grandkids, like you don't even know what cicadas are <laughs> like until you've been through. Yeah. Hey, we have something cool coming up that I want everyone to oh, hear yeah. about. Is uh, on July fourteenth at eight fifteen p.m. We're going to do a live episode a live episode of Theology and Insanity. And we're going to welcome uh, people can call in and ask questions. They can submit questions. It's going to be awesome. So please uh, put that on your calendar as a save the date. We'll get more information to you. But it'll be great because you, you'll you be able to you know call in and ask Mike any question you have on the fly, and we'll be scrambling to answer everything we we can and uh yeah and it'll be Dave, a great time. You, you yeah it, yeah 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 i'll take some you're swings a treasure sure. trove of, uh, I'll, of i'll take some swings knowledge. Yeah. uh but yeah so so july 14th that's a wednesday at 8 15 p.m put it on your calendar um and and we'll have more information for you how to sign up and everything coming up soon so awesome hey mike today i wanted to we're finally starting to get some listener emails which is great so happy about that Thanks so much. If you have questions about theology or topics you'd like us to address, uh, you can email questions at theologyandinsanity.com. That's questions at theologyandinsanity.com. And we have three today that I think uh, probably are going to fill our episode here. So I wanted to start with the one from Hannah. Uh, she says, uh, gentlemen, first off, thank you so much for putting this content out there. It's been a privilege to listen each week during your conversation. She says, during your conversation with Father Wineindy, as in other episodes, the absolute necessity of a vibrant relationship with Jesus uh, 
as a cradle Catholic who tends toward more towards a Baltimore catechism approach, what would you suggest in order to cultivate that relationship with Christ? And in a similar vein, how would you suggest fostering that sort of relationship in the home and with your children? Thanks so much, and God bless in Christ, Hannah. So thanks for writing in, Great Hannah. Question. And yeah, I, I love the question. Um, yeah, I'll take a swing if if you don't mind, yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah, please. You know, uh, one of the things that I have a lot of experience with is is just that trying to help people to cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus, particularly Catholics. And um, I think for the most part, when you're working in Catholic parishes now, you're working with people who are from the era of the Baltimore Catechism, which I find a fantastic ground uh, to be fruitful for a personal relationship with Jesus. And one of the things that I always do is um, a little bit of low-hanging fruit. I recommend uh, reading a lot of the books of Father Jacques Philippe. I don't know if you've heard of him before or if you've read him. Oh, yeah. He's great. Yeah, Father Jacques Philippe does an excellent job of bringing the spiritual tradition of the church into the modern age, right? He understands moderns. He understands us. Um, it's thoroughly Catholic. It's thoroughly simple. It's very simple, and it's easy to get into. And so uh, that's one of the first things I recommend to people. Um, and I recommend that they start a daily mental prayer regiment, you know, uh, but make sure that that mental prayer regiment isn't too regimented, right? That what you're trying to do is just um, build a relationship with Jesus similar to the way you'd build a relationship with any kind of friend, you know? Um, and uh, the other thing I would say is, and I, I know like in the life of my wife, this was amazing to watch the change that kind of happened in her, is your prayer should be two-sided, right? You shouldn't just talk the whole time, you know? And I, I remember the first time I ever started listening in prayer, it's almost as if God was saying like, oh my gosh, finally you shut up and give me a chance to to talk to you a little bit, you know? Uh, and I, I couldn't tell you what he was saying. I couldn't write down exactly what he was saying, but I knew he was communicating himself to me. And so I think that's a, a really important part. Finally, I would just say, uh, you know, kind of the practices of Brother Lawrence, the practice of the presence of God. I, I do them in a kind of a hokey way. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm like the kind of person, like I get in the car and I buckle the other seatbelt, like, all right, Jesus, come on a ride with me, you know, that kind of thing to remind <laughs> myself. My my kids make fun of me and stuff like that for that. But but I think that little practices like that can help you uh, to just just remind yourself to like uh, that you're in a constant relationship with him and, and, and to fall more deeply in love with him. The last thing I'll say is... Uh, one of the things that helped both my wife and I fall deeply in love with Jesus was a um, a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by a um, a language scholar by the name of Erasimo Leva Marikakis. It's a four volume, and it's a it's a beast. But literally, both of us had the experience of just reading this and just falling deeply, deeply in love with Jesus Christ. And so, I, I'd recommend those books to you. Well, that's great. Let's see. Let's see what you um, have to say, Mike. Yeah, no, I, I agree, 100, 110%. Um, mental prayer, daily contact. Mental prayer can import all these notions of structure, and I like the way you put it, that you don't go too crazy with the structure, but you won't miss the spirit of mental prayer, sure. which is daily coming into contact with Jesus, putting yourself, uh, set aside at least 15 minutes, or if you have five minutes, work up to 15 minutes, maybe work up longer if possible, but uh, have you know a good bit of time, just like in any relationship with someone, you want that relationship to be, be fostered and to flourish, you need to actually spend time with that person. 
And with Jesus, the way we spend time with him is in what we call mental prayer, which is putting yourself in his presence. That It's as simple as remembering, Jesus, you are here right now. You are here with me. You are more real than anything else. And you hear me. You can hear everything that everybody's telling you all the time. You are God and you are man. You're here with me. Uh, give me your grace. Send me your Holy Spirit that I can you know, have, be fruitful in mental prayer with you right now. And then exactly, you, you, you speak to him in the four kinds of prayer, praise, uh, petition, adoration, and repentance, but then you listen to him. And a great way to listen to him is with a spiritual reading of, above all the Bible and above all the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew commentary makes a lot of sense because as Jerome, St. Jerome said, you know, you, you, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, but the contrary is the case that you, know, you want to come to know Jesus Christ and love him, um, be steeped in Scripture, especially the stories of the Gospels, right. the, the histories of the Gospels, uh, the Psalms especially as well. Uh, but then also spend time and be quiet and, and listen. You won't necessarily hear a voice, an audible voice, uh, but that's important time. You know, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, yeah. and be quiet. And then it's often much later, maybe days or weeks later, you realize something's happening. He's touching me. I didn't know it at the time, but he is. Um, so that's all very important. There's two extremes. Um, one would be the uh, Hannah's question where she said, well, more of a Baltimore catechism Catholic. That's not incompatible. It's not a zero-sum game. But no. the problem could be is uh, you know, Baltimore catechism is rich with true information, uh, truth, revealed truth about Jesus, about the Father, about the Holy Spirit, about the sacraments, about the church, about everything, okay, uh, that's revealed in our faith. Um, but you could get so steeped in that and not spend, so that in, in a sense that would be spending a lot of time talking and thinking about God, but not speaking to him and listening to him. Right. right? So that's one extreme is, 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 is it would be only using these sources to gain information, but never speaking or listening to the Lord. The other extreme, and I'm not sure that, that I don't know where this shows up that often, but would be, you know, speaking and listening to the Lord and not informing yourself the ways, using the means yeah. he's given us, which would be catechisms or the Bible or something like that. Maybe that could be, what do you call that, uh, centering prayer, different than practicing the presence of Jesus, where, where you... I don't know if people even know what that is anymore, but it's emptying your mind. It's like a Buddhist thing. You're not even, th- you want to empty your mind of all things, uh, maybe even including Jesus. <laughs> you know, you don't have any images, and that's not right either. So it's both. You, you, if you, in fact, I find if you use the Baltimore Catechism or even the Council of Trent or the current catechism can be like the Bible. These are spiritual readings, and then bring it into a conversation with Jesus. Bring it, you know, it'll prompt questions you can ask him or prompt aspirations. Jesus, please, I don't really love you the way I ought. I want to. Help me. You know, give me that love. The apostles asked, you know, Lord, increase our faith. You can ask that. Lord, may I know you better. May I love you better. Have a co- Basically, have a conversation yeah. with him. <laughs> I think, I think though, one thing to remember is you're, in a lot of ways, like you're, if you're living in this day and age, you're in a much better position being like what you describe as kind of a Baltimore catechism approach because so many people allow their view of God to be informed by their experience of prayer. And that can be problematic, you know, because you're, everyone's first experience of prayer is sensitive and emotional and wonderful, you know? And when you first start that, God, you know, delights us with with his delight and and tries to draw us in, you know? 
Um, but then when you kind of find out who God is, you know, that he's, he's not just uh, he's not just a sunny day at the beach. He's also the consuming fire. It can be problematic. So having a firm knowledge of, you know, <laughs> God not being Santa Claus is going to help your relationship long term. Um, and it's, you're not going to hit the roadblocks at so many. I mean, I, I can tell you hundreds of stories over the years of teaching Catholics how to pray and them like having this beautiful prayer experience and then them reading like the old Testament or, or them having yeah, tragedy right. in their life and being like, what, right. what the heck? I pray every day. How, How could, could he do happen? this to me? Right. right. And so right. they're right. allowing right. that, you know, to be, it's kind of like being in a relationship with a person and not realizing that they're just a person, you know, like, like, you know, you're, it's just learning right. th- through their personality. You know, it's like, we have to know who God is before we can have that beautiful relationship. So. No, thank you. That's, that's right. In fact, um, I find that re rereading, I've, I've been reading through the Bible again and, um, the Old Testament really is important too. I didn't mean to ignore that because the, the the New Testament's critical because there you hear the gospel and you find out what Jesus did and said while he was on earth. The Old Testament's important too because it's the same Lord God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's acting in surprising ways, in profound ways, in amazingly merciful ways, also very intense, consuming fire type ways. And then there's also Job, yeah. where somebody who's really righteous, declared by God himself in that book as righteous, suffers profoundly, which is interesting because the history of Scripture up to Job, usually it's different. When people are wicked, they get punished. When they're uh, holy, they get rewarded, right? You see that. You don't see as much, although Joseph is a foretaste of this, where you have this patriarch Joseph who gets mistreated, and he sees this as God's providence to bring something good out of it, um, mistreated by his brothers, sold into slavery, etc. With Job, you get this. So, no, you, 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 I think the thing is you need to be steeped in Scripture. A great uh, example of this was impressed upon me years and years ago is, um, look, the enemy is going to come at you like he ca- came at Jesus, and Jesus was, he came at Jesus with scripture passages yeah. or misunderstood, you know, misunderstood, twisted interpretations. And Jesus came at him back uh, with, of course, you know, he's the author of scripture as God, but he's also human and he was steeped in scripture and he knew it well and was able to use it to defend him and protect him. So there's a, it's a spiritual armament is, is scripture. It's a two-edged sword. It helps you to defend yourself and to live right. You have, you have the answers to life there to all of life's questions um, in Scripture. Not that it's pat and cut and dried and easy. It's not easy. It's hard. Yeah, you, you know what else, the other thing I would say that you kind of brought up, well, you kind of brought to my mind is we can't, you know, it, it is very much like a human relationship in the sense that, you know, we, we have to spend time and we have to nurture it and we have to do those things. But in a human relationship, you kind of like go into it wondering like, does this person, is he in love with me or is she in love with me, right? Like you should, the presupposition is that God is head over heels in love with you. You know, you start from that, you know, not like I'm going to enter this prayer life and hope that, you know, God will fall in love with me. That's ridiculous, you know, so we want to enter that already knowing that that's that's the case. Um, The last thing I would say is, um, you know, sometimes when you read the lives of the saints, you see a little more of their deeds come out than the spirit behind their deeds, not always, but a lot of times that happens. And so I would recommend, you know, the life of St. Francis of Assisi. Just, you cannot, I I remember reading the the first time I read it, I remember just putting, closing the book and being like, this is a person who loves Jesus the way Jesus was meant to be loved. You know, it was the first time I ever had seen that and witnessed it. So I would highly recommend that. Um, With kids, it's a whole, 
whole other ball yes, game. Yes, good. Right? I'm glad you brought that up because that's her question yeah, too. Is yeah. what do you do to foster this sort of relationship in the home and with your yeah. children? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know kind of just throw something out there, but you know I want to say that you can do everything right and it your kid can go wayward. You know, just so everyone, I mean, I know families who did everything right, but the world is, we're in the world, you know, and, and, and things can, can happen like that. And that's not to, to, to worry you or anything like that. Um, but it's to say like, you know, just so you know, like, you know, it's not like if you check all these boxes, you don't have to worry anymore, you know? And so what I would say about, you know, fostering faith and a relationship with Jesus in your kids which, for all I know, I mean, my oldest is twelve. For all I know, he could turn out to be an axe murderer or something like that. So who knows? But if, if this if this is good <laughs> advice or not, but it seems to me what we're about to see in the next fifty years of the church is tons of parents of saints being declared saints, and that is telling to me that saints create saints, you know. And so I think, like, in particular, like, so Pope John Paul has that experience where he sees his father kneeling at 3 a.m. in the morning praying for him. Uh, Teresa Lisieux seeing her dad at Mass in the mornings. Um, I mean, we're talking... St. Augustine, Augustine and St. Monica. Monica. Um, but in, in the next 50 years, we're going to see I, several families canonized together, several parents canonized after their children were canonized. And so what we see is like, you know, I mean, to me, it seems like the only foolproof plan for your kids is if, if you want them to be saints is try to be a saint yourself. Yeah. Be a saint. No, that's wonderful. No, that's absolutely right. You have to do that. I agree. And that, Laura and I are convicted about that yeah. as well. Um, you have to be doing mental prayer or contact with Jesus every day. Um, instruct them. We, we, we would have on and off uh, this Sunday catechetical minute with dad, uh, but you know the one thing we do emphasize is above all in in life uh, it the most important thing is to grow closer to Jesus every day and spend and what we just say what you and I just said in this conversation according to their age and they can handle it our oldest is 21 now um and our our youngest is 3 and so according to their age we can say you know uh, look spend time with Jesus and we can give them um as they get older uh, more uh, some of our kids will read Francis de Sales' Introduction right. to the Devout right. Life, or or whatever. You know, um, we we don't we don't demand it. It's not um, something where you get punished if you don't do yeah. it. Uh, at the same time, we we urge it, we foster it, we spend time after Mass in Thanksgiving. You know, they 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 get kind of used to that yeah. rhythm. So, um, yeah. But I'm no expert in parenting, that's for sure. Uh, but at least you know, I think you're right. The most important thing you can do is do it yourself strive for saint, sainthood, uh, intimacy with Jesus yourself, but then also tell them, you know, you have to right. talk about right. it with yeah. them too. So. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm definitely not a, don't like just, just lead by example person. You got to say something for sure. You yeah. Say something yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. Awesome. Hannah, I hope that helped. Uh, let's move on. That was on. a great question. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. asking it. Yeah. 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 I loved it. Um, okay. Andrew wrote in. This is a this is all you, Mike. I have I hardly even understood what he was talking about. He says blessings. I have to admit, I had to look it up myself. Okay, so, good, yeah. good. Uh, I don't feel so bad now. He says blessings. <laughs> love the show. My question is about the status of the Council of Lateran six forty nine. Why wasn't it accepted as ecumenical and and isn't to this day seen as ecumenical despite seeming to fit all the criterion of an ecumenical council. 
It was called by Pope Theodore I, presided over by Pope Martin I. It condemned monothelitism as a her- heresy. It had bishops from the West and East, notably uh, from the East, St. Maximus the Confessor, who considered the Council ecumenical. Perhaps I'm missing one of the essential components of what makes a Council ecumenical or some sort of historical fact. Thank you, and God bless. Good question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. I would love to know why... He's asking. I I hope you write back, Andrew, and tell us the context because you're just like reading in a book one day and you're like, now why isn't this council considered yeah, ecumenical? Yeah. Right, right. I love it. And and there's probably some implications that he's, yeah, he's thinking of, right. and I can think of some, but I don't want to impose those on his mind. <laughs> so if he, I hope Andrew's Andrew was a student of mine. Okay, he was a great great student. So I hope he does write back. Um, but the quick answer is yes, you are missing one of the essential components of what makes a council ecumenical, and that is this, that for a council to be ecumenical, it has to be called by uh, the Pope and in the early church also by the emperor, right? the Catholic em- emperor, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Pope. Um, uh, all bishops have to be invited. A sufficient number of bishops have to attend. That, doesn't, that means not every single bishop has to attend. They're all invited to attend, but a, 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 you have to have some kind of a quorum, you know. And then third, and here's what's missing, the council has to be ratified uh, after it's finished. It has to be ratified and promulgated as ecumenical, that means worldwide, uh, the oikumene, the, the household of God, right, the, which is the entire universe, okay? It has to be promulgated as a universal council, not just a local council, but a universal, like we've been talking about synods in the past, this is a, lo- a universal council, it has to be promulgated and ratified by the Pope and in the early church also by the emperor. So there was no papal ratification of this council. Um, yes, popes called it, a pope presided over it, but a pope at the, at the end did not ratify and promulgate it as uni- universal or ecumenical, nor did the emperor, Constans II, uh, ratify this council. Now, uh, why is a, is a historical interesting question, um, and it, does, it has to do with the relationship of church and state. In the early church, after the decriminalization of Christianity with Constantine, and, ev- and eventually the adoption of Catholicism as the official religion of the empire, which, by the way, Dave, you think about this, it's amazing. Aquinas calls this phenomenon maybe the greatest miracle that ever occurred, maybe. At least it's up there. Why? Because a small group of marginalized Jewish men, right, right, <laughs> the apostles, right, toppled the millennium-old ancient pagan Roman empire. By following a guy a gen- who, in a, in a, who right, claimed yeah. his, he was king, Kaiser Christo. Right. It, 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 in one generation, right. in one generation, right. these guys from the from the margins of the right. empire, like in a remote backwater place, you know, just completely with no military power, anything, yeah. complete, just by converting the, the nations through the power of God and the witness of their lives and the Holy Spirit and grace and miracles, etc. They, they, yeah, so that's amazing already. Anyway, so Christianity, Catholicism becomes the official uh, religion of the empire, and, 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 the, and the Holy Roman Emperor very early on was the, was the defender of the faith. That was one of their main titles, is they're the defender of the faith. So it's their job. They t- a lot of them took it very seriously. They weren't all great, but some of them were great. Some of them were saints, uh, saintly. Um, they... When a dispute, the religious dispute, became critical, like in this case, monothelitism is, d- d- did Jesus have only one will, namely the divine will? He did not have a human will. 
which would mean he's not a full, complete human being, right? Or does he, which is the church's teaching, have two wills, a human will and a divine will, united in one person, God the Son? Uh, That's the orthodox teaching. So this is a heresy, monothelitism, and it's very important to correct this because it denies the full humanity of Jesus. Uh, And if he's not fully human, he doesn't redeem what he doesn't assume to himself. So if he doesn't assume a into himself a human will. He doesn't redeem the human will, which is the seat of grace and goodness or and sin if you commit sins, right? So you need... The, you, so it's very important. It's a very important theological issue, which, by the way, was eventually condemned at an ecumenical council about 20 years later in the Third Council of Constantinople in 680-something, 681-682. So, uh, so the quick answer... Sorry, I'm going on and on. But the quick answer, Andrew, is... Uh, it's not an ecumenical council because the Pope and the Emperor did not promulgate it, ratify it, and present it to the world as ecumenical. The, the thing is, um, the question, it is an important question because the Popes did see it as legitimate. Uh, Martin I, who presided over it, saw it as, you know, this is good, this is definitive. But if he were to promulgate it, see, because the council was called without the Emperor's involvement. So that was kind of a unique situation. That would never happen before. Uh, then, um, if they promulgated it without the emperor's consent, then that would be seen at the time as a revolutionary act, where the pope is asserting authority over against the emperor. Uh, it's not that the pope served the emperor; he didn't. They were both supreme in their different realms: right. the pope in the ch- realm of the church, the emperor in the realm of the polis or this, uh, you know, the state. Okay. So church and state were both Catholic and they worked together. In a sense, the state serves the church, uh, but the popes didn't act up to that point uh, as a rule, apart from the emperor when a universal phenomenon occurred, like a council. So uh, eventually though, as a lot of people know, uh, uh, the popes did a couple hundred years later, right around 1000 AD and beyond, in fact, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 AD uh, really sealed the deal here, where popes just acted apart from and independent of the emperors. Uh, of course, the empire itself was crumbling; it split into two, east and west, etc. All these things were happening, but the but the papacy did not split. The papacy, to this day, has remained intact. All right, good. So that's just a little bit of the answer, I suppose. The es- I hope I hope the essence of it. No, no, that, I thought that was great. The, it was a mess, huh? I mean, the whole the political issues with the church at that time, and I mean, it seems I don't know when I when I read about it, it just it's so it's so out of my. I mean, I guess because I'm I'm thoroughly American, you know, and have been you know raised in this way. It's like it seems so strange to think you live in a papal state or you live. You know, right, the right. Holy Roman Empire or something like that. It's crazy. But there's always political messes, right? Like right yeah. now, right now as we're right. recording this, okay, uh, uh, the U.S. bishops are yeah. embroiled in a political question uh, that's really a religious question that has political ramifications. Uh, President Biden, no question, completely rejects the Catholic teaching on abortion uh, in the sense that he is pro-abortion and supports it and promotes it and decriminalizes it and and tries to foster it, okay? We don't need to judge his soul. In this case, we can easily judge his words and actions. His words and actions, exactly. (laughs) And so he he must not present himself for communion. So they're debating how to deal with this because it's a political minefield in some of their minds or whatever. So in any event, it's always been messy. It's always been messy, yeah. even if you have the church separated from the state like we do here, or distinct from the state. 
so I've been I've been watching it with great delight. I mean, because the only thing you can do almost is laugh sometimes. But you know, the, so they have this letter, right? That several several of the bishops are saying like, no, let's not discuss this at the at the the meeting. And then you've got several of the bishops on that letter saying, I never signed the letter. It's like, right. could you right, guys right. get this together? I mean, this right. is this is a joke, you know. Yeah. Uh, it just uh, what a mess, what a mess. I I can hardly I can only laugh or I'll cry. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. So it's it's tricky. Um, but maybe some other day we'll talk about this because there's a resurgence of the of the notion of integralism, right? Have you heard about this? The idea that the state should be Catholic, uh, that the state. Oh has yeah, a I've duty. heard a little bit about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's something we could talk about later, but like, like, but that's like an issue. Like church some state. people like talk about Catholic the... monarchies and stuff like that. Yeah, it could be a yeah. monarchy, but integralism yeah. could even be a, a democracy, but. But uh, but yeah, a lot of them are monarchists. Absolutely. Well, uh, I mean, it's, wait, but there are countries that are like that already. Right? A few I mean, still. Well, like yeah, even like Lebanon. I think their constitution says the president has to be Catholic and stuff like that. Lebanon. I yeah, I, I mean they don't practice it. They don't follow oh, it. But I, I know. I think that. Yeah, because it was a French. Uh, okay. Yeah. Now now um, there are pl- uh, Catholic states like very tiny ones like Liechtenstein in Europe. And uh, Luxembourg, okay? Luxembourg are two tiny kingdoms. They are kingdoms. Yeah, that's cool. And they are Catholic uh, monarchs. You know, the, the official religion of the kingdom is Catholicism. But but that's that's for another, you know. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Cool. We have Okay, so this is a kind of a complicated question, but this it's one's one tough. that comes up all this the time. One. Yeah, it's yeah. hard. It's yeah. hard for everybody. This is something, you know, everybody talks about. Um, this is from Viva Cristo Rey, so I don't know exactly who this is from, but he says, thank you for accepting questions. I'm a fan of the show. My question is, if divorce and or other acts such as polygamy and slavery are objective moral evils, like those mentioned in Veritati Splendor 80, are permitted in the Old Testament, then does this mean God can make an objective moral evil not sinful since he allowed slash regulated these actions? Isn't God's regulation or permitting these moral evils tantamount to voluntarism in regards to mor- morality, since we today are forbidden from doing these actions? Basically, if slavery, polygamy, and divorce are moral evils, then why was it licit for Jews 3,500 years ago? Thank you. Great question. That Great is fantastic question. question. Very difficult, and it's a very ancient question, too, by the way. It's not a new one. People have been asking this for quite some time. <laughs> yeah, jump. What do you think? Hey, do you go want, ahead. Do you no, jump in. Jump I don't in. want to just uh, d- dominate the conversation. No, no, jump. This in. is I'm, very. This for is this very question, tough. I am happy yeah, for yeah. you to jump out there. Okay. Well, well, listen. He, there's a there's a very serious there. Are a, con, there's a constellation of very serious issues at stake here. Um, so jumping kind of in no particular order, right into the middle of it, I think maybe this is near the heart of the, uh, it, and it's a a theological issue. Uh, the the uh, the questioner, Viva Cristo Rey, mentions voluntarism, and that's very important, okay? Voluntarism is the notion that, um, well, there's a lot of uh, notions attached to it, but it's the idea that the will is primary, the will dominates over the intellect in, in any rational or intelligent being, humans, angels, or God. When it comes to God, there there's kind of degrees of stronger or weaker voluntarism, Okay. In the strongest sense, voluntarism, and arguably, and it is argued among scholars, but arguably William of Ockham was the one who was one of the strongest voluntarists uh, in, in, our, in the Catholic you know, world, 
Uh, and it is argued, I understand there are arguments to the contrary, okay, but generally it's held that he was a pretty radical voluntarist so that God could have um, made, let's say, for example, uh, another, the view is whatever God wills right. to be good is good, and whatever he wills to be bad is bad. So that the goodness or badness of something is based on God's arbitrary will. Arbitri- arbitrary comes from arbitrium in Latin, which means kind of choice. So whatever he chooses to be good is good. So that, uh, this is a quote attributed to Occam, it may be improperly attributed to him, but God could have uh, 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 made murder a good thing. Right. Like that right. Murdering could be good. Uh, that would be unjustly taking a life you know, of someone who doesn't deserve that. God could have... Uh, crucified a donkey. This sounds blasphemous in my mind, but God could have crucified a donkey for our sins. Just whatever he wants goes. It's kind of like this, like, why should I do this? Because I said so. It's almost like, shut up and don't think about it. Yeah, the board board game theory. Like, God sets up a board game for us. That's what we're in, you know? And, like, he just sets up, he makes the rules however he wants. However he wants. Yeah. It's it's arbitrary. And arbitrary is, like I said, etymologically important because it just means... Arbitrium, choice, whatever he chooses, it's kind of not it's, it just seems, granted in it, reason. It seems like the, well, I mean, I don't want to sidetrack you, but with William of Ockham, I, it seems it seems so untenable to hold that when it, it just doesn't, there's no comprehensive view of God then, right? I mean, and, and, well, no, I mean, there's no cohesive view of, like, goodness, morality, sin, God, you know, all of those things, Tr- universal truth. I mean, it just seems crazy. It, he comes across as arbitrary and perhaps tyrannical. I mean, that's what tyranny is, right? Yeah, right. But to be fair, or at least to try to be as sympathetic as possible, um, yeah, I mean, I'm no understanding Ockham, as possible. So obviously, he has more. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Well, it, it's because this arises as an exegetical problem. Precisely, the point of entry is where our questioner is yeah. coming into it. Like in the Old Testament, you have God. It's not just divorce, polygamy, and slavery. It's also, um, my goodness, Dave, we can up the ante all oh, the yeah. way. Like the ban? God, God command. Yeah, yeah. God, the ban or harem warfare is, hey, Israel, Joshua, you guys go in there and you put to death every single living thing. That's every man, not just soldiers, but non-soldiers, old men, uh, every woman, child, and animal. Every animal. So it's just oh, an obliteration. Now, now, to be fair there... Also, um, I think in every single case, if there were, like Rahab the harlot, right. okay, if there were people who convert, um, they're spared. So, and then very often the, the ban, they wouldn't put to death small children or even maidens like under the age of 13, they would take them. But then, of course, uh, some of them were enslaved. Right. So there was slavery. And it seems like it was God calling for this as well. So these are very... Very difficult exegetical yeah. questions. Yeah. God commands Abraham to offer Isaac as a human sacrifice, uh, and Abraham is willing to do it, and and God rewards him for that willingness. Right. So, uh, how do you grapple with these things? And so, like I said, these are old questions, right? Uh, divorce and polygamy and slavery are just part of this whole these issues. And so, the question is, um, they're wrong now, but if God's commanding them back then. They must not be bad, right? And then that draws the issue, the mind to the issue of, uh, well, are there, in, uh, you know, act, 
actions which are intrinsically evil or not. Uh, these must not be intrinsically evil acts if they're allowed at sometimes by the good God and not at other times, right? So this is a, these are very good and very difficult questions, and we can spend a few minutes at least untangling some of the basics, not answering every detail, because some of the, some of the d- details of these questions are not even answered to this day yet. There's still living debates among Orthodox scholars in the church about some of this. Go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. Well, you, you okay. used the word command, and I think that's part of the the issue here is God didn't command any of right. Allow is the, is the, I mean, it, we have to start from the fact that they were never not sinful, you know, like there's a difference between God uh, allowing it for the hardness of their heart and and it it not being a sin anymore. Yes. That applies to divorce. Uh, Let's get to, we'll, we'll get to his, specific issues, divorce, polygamy, yeah, and okay. uh, slavery in a second. Let's start with the even harder one, which is uh, killing. Okay. okay, killing. Okay. Um, th- there are two kind of, I wouldn't say extreme, but but two very different and mutually incompatible interpretations of God commanding the Israelites to put to death a bunch of people, a bunch of pagans in the Old Testament, or even God commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, okay? On the one hand, and this is this is more extreme, you have Origen. Origen was an early church ecclesiastical writer who interpreted almost all of these passages um, allegorically. Right. So I in other words, it's, it's, it's not it's really... An allegory yeah. for sin. Yeah. Yes, yeah, beautiful, right. So in other words, it's not God saying actually kill people. That would be interpreting these passages literally. He says they're not meant literally. They're meant allegorically. So instead of killing all the Canaanites, what you're doing is you're killing the inclinations in your soul of idolatry. Like Paul says, put to death the old man in Christ. You know, in, unite with Christ and die with, with him on the cross to your sins. Okay, put, put sin to death. It's not people. Okay, So that's origin. And that, that's attractive in a certain respect because it, it really upholds the fact that these literal actions of, you know, like say murder or slavery or whatever, are intrinsically evil. Okay. Yeah, it's, so it it's sits well, but it's too facile. Go ahead. Yeah, it sits, it sits well, well with ahead, yeah. modern sensitivities, but it does. It doesn't. It, does. it right. doesn't sit well with me. No, not not me either, uh, because it's too facile. Uh, so, some passages, literally, God is is like yeah. the Abraham passage. You can't get around that. So, so Saint Augustine is on the other end. I wouldn't call him extreme. He's not extreme. I think Augustine has it correct, though. And then there, in between Augustine and Origen, there's a spectrum of different positions. But Augustine's p- position is this, and it's not exactly pleasant to c- consider, but really is, um, I think it's true, okay? The penalty for original sin is death. Death is a punishment. That was not God's original plan for any of us. And so that includes anybody who is conceived with original sin is subject to death, even if they have not committed personal sins. That would include babies. And that's horrible. It's so heartbreaking to consider. You know, we've lost babies, and other people have lost babies as well, and it's so sad to consider this, okay? But death is a very sad punishment due to sin. But Christ has conquered death, so that's part of the gospel. That's part of the good news. Nevertheless, Augustine says that God can impose that punishment um, you know, in different ways. He can allow nature to come in, right. just the, you know, if we didn't sin, he would have prevented the natural entropy and dis- corruption of leading to death of humans through the tree of life, okay? Uh, eating the fruit of the tree of life. 
uh, if that might be allegorical, but in any event, he would have prevented it. But we sinned, and so he's not preventing it. So he can permit death to occur naturally. He can impose it, um, and he can impose it directly uh, and like Sodom and providentially. Gomorrah, something like yeah, through yeah. through some natural phenomenon like uh, meteors or something, fire and brimstone, or or some other uh, tragedy like a volcano or or whatever, a storm. He can all, and here's the thing, Augustine says he can also designate individual humans to execute his judgment of putting to death people, even if they're younger, okay, and maybe not uh, subject to have committed a lot of personal sins, yet they have original sins. So God was doing this in Augustine's view with, with Abraham. He was, uh, you know, Isaac was subject to the penalty of death because of original sin, and so it would not, if Abraham had been permitted by God to complete the act of putting to death Isaac, uh, Abraham, uh, Augustine argues, that would have been not a sin of murder, but that would have been a just implementation of capital punishment as a result of death, uh, as a result of, of original sin, excuse me, as a result of original sin. So that's, Yikes, a, that's pretty hard. harsh. Yeah, that's that hard. is harsh, okay? And so he interprets a lot of the ban or harem warfare along those same lines, uh, and listen, to be really clear, yeah. no Catholic is required to hold that view. This is a right. permitted view. This is one of several views that are permitted in the church. So I, I just got to make that absolutely clear. This is not dogma. This is a theological opinion that I prefer. <clears throat> I think it, it does justice to the fact that, uh, like Origen's also concerned with, these the, the, the actions of uh, murder is intrinsically evil. In this case, killing, not all killing is murder, and everyone right. does agree with right. that, because there can be accidental killing, and that's not, you're killing a human, but it's not murder. There can be other instances of, like, capital punishment, which is, a you know, I know a new difficult issue with the revision to the catechism. We could talk about that another time. Maybe we should talk about that another time, but in any event, um, well, all right, so that's well, one, can I, that's, yeah. So, I mean, killing, it's, it's okay. so much easier, though, when you talk about the ban, you know, there's the argument, I don't remember who makes this, but the argument that these cultures were so evil that God was actually it being merciful by ending the culture completely. That that makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. I mean like these bloodthirsty, child sacrificing cultures, you like to allow them to persist in evil would actually make hell worse for them. Yeah, it's it's analogous to the flood. Where yeah, he yeah, just right, puts an right. end to the corruption. Um, he said he wouldn't do that again by water, so now he's doing it by his yeah, people, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. But but now we can get divorce, polygamy, and slavery. They're not all equally answered the way we'd answer right. the question of killing. Right, especially so, slavery is so different. Than y- the, you yeah. nailed it, David. I think when you said um, with divorce. God never commanded divorce. I mean, right. Jesus makes that real clear. Right. He, you know, the Pharisees, well, why, why couldn't we? You know, Moses said you could divorce. But Jesus is, doesn't say, you know, God did not command that. God permitted that, as you correctly, right, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, for the hardness of your heart, he permitted that. And that's in Deuteronomy. That's in Deuteronomy. Now, the law is the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five books. Deuteronomy... Um, uh, the word, the title of that book is is Deuteros Namas in Greek, the second law. It's the second set of laws that come. Scott Hahn is fantastic on this, but he's not alone in this. A lot of scholars recognize this, that um, 
the, the original law, the Ten Commandments, and then the ceremonial precepts given beginning in Exodus 20, all right, and beyond, is, is good, it's holy. It still is, the Ten Commandments is still the law for us, okay? Not the ceremonial stuff anymore, but the, uh, that's replaced by the, the, the new sacraments that Jesus, the final sacraments Jesus established. But the Ten Commandments remain as objectively, intrinsically, the way to be good and to avoid intrinsically evil acts. Yes, absolutely. So there is, we want to affirm, haven't done this yet in this conversation, that there are intrinsically immoral acts, as John Paul II says, in Veritatis Splendor, Article 80, and elsewhere, as the questioner correctly mentions, right? So is divorce an intrinsically immoral act? Yes. Yes, it is. Why? And so in other words, could God have made divorce, could he have commanded it? No. Just like God could not command murder. That's why Augustine, what Augustine's saying, he's not commanding murder with Abraham or with the ban. Uh, He's commanding people implement his just... Yeah, but with divorce, no. Divorce, what is divorce? We've talked about this in a prior episode. Divorce actively. Now, if you're divorced passively, then you're not committing a sin. But if you actively divorce, you're really married, and you, what that is, is you are a... A, you're abandoning your spouse and any children you have. You're abandoning them. It's an act of hatred. It's a mortal sin. That's an act of hatred. Secondly, you're violating the vows, the solemn, sacred vows you took to them before God's presence. So you're perjuring yourself in a sense. You're, 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 you're going back on your vows, on your promise, until death will I remain faithful to you no matter how difficult and hard it is. And in marriage, man, it gets hard, right? And you need that grace. We've talked about all this, okay? So divorce is intrinsically evil. Um, so how, how is it God, well, God permitted it. He didn't command it. This is the easier question. Polygamy is more difficult, I think. Uh, divorce, he, he, he permits it. He doesn't command it. Uh, Scott Hahn, years ago, this is wonderful. I was taking a class with him, um, and he, he did a kind of extended commentary and theological reflection on on the, the second law, where there's just a lot of curses attached to violating uh, the precepts in Deuteronomy, but there aren't blessings as there are attached to the Ten Commandments back in Exodus. He points out this passage, Dr. Hun, from Ezekiel uh, chapter 20, verse 25. And in it, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is saying this in verse 25. I gave them... Now, he's talking about what he gave to the Israelites, Okay. Uh, the statutes um, and his ordinances, okay? And, and this is back back up to verse 19. I'm the Lord your God, walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, hallow my Sabbaths. That's the, the third commandment, right? That, that, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I, the Lord, am your God. But the children rebelled against me, verse 21. They didn't walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my ordinances. See, so, so the law is given, but right away they break the right, law, right? right. So then God has to think, and he says in verse 21, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness, but I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, and Moses interceded, right, and, and, and begged God to be merciful. But he did swear to them that they would be scattered among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not executed my ordinances but had rejected my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. That's verse 24. So as a result of this, boom, you get Deuteronomy, which is a second set of laws because of their hardness of heart and, and evilness. So you, yeah, you can divorce, okay, that's permitted. Uh, uh, at least he allows Moses to permit that, right? And in verse 25, look at this. 
we read, moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good. I gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not have life. Again, you look at the ordinances in Deuteronomy. If you violate them, there's a curse. But if you fulfill them, there's no blessing attached to them as there are blessings attached to following the Ten Commandments back in Exodus. So these are the statutes that Dr. Hahn's thesis and many, many uh, scholars have the similar thesis, I think, at least some do, maybe because of Scott, <laughs> is, is that, in a good sense, right, is that um, the laws are statutes that were not good. How could God give a, a statute that's not good? Well, as a result of sin, he allows him to fall into sin. He's allowing it. See, he's not commanding divorce. He's allowing it. Uh, and you're not going to get life from divorce and remarriage. Yeah. Okay, so he allows it for the hardness of their hearts, uh, but it's not okay. So that's so. I think divorce is, is a little bit easier. I think polygamy is a little bit more difficult because at least divorce is condemned by God ultimately and very clearly by Jesus Christ in the gospel. He who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and same with a woman divorcing her husband. But polygamy is is more difficult because uh, the tradition of Jewish and Catholic theology up through the Middle Ages to the early modern period, maybe even beyond, is that polygamy is not intrinsically, Im- even though it's against the natural law, so this is crazy, right? Yeah. It's against the natural law, but it's not intrinsically immoral the way divorce is. Right. It's, it, That's, immoral I don't know, in another I'm way. I'm not saying I hold it. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not saying I hold this, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what I think. I, I know this. I attended a Fellowship of Catholic Scholars quarterly, uh, sorry, Fellowship of Catholic Scholars conference. I think it was Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. Or it may have been a conference at Ave Maria. They all bleed together in my mind these days. Um, oh, no, you know what it was? I'm sorry. It was, it was a conference in Poland on biblical Thomism on Aquinas, the biblical scholar, okay? Because Aquinas was a biblical scholar as well. And in it, a Christendom professor gave a wonderful talk on the various views of polygamy among the fathers of the church interpreting scripture where, yes, in the Old Testament, polygamy does seem to be permitted. God never does condemn it explicitly. Uh, it's different than divorce, in a sense. It's more difficult, right? It seems, it seems acceptable, at least within limits. And then, by the New Testament, it's out. You don't, polygamy's not acceptable any longer. Why? How did that happen? How do you understand it? Well, what he showed is that there is a very broad spectrum within orthodoxy among the fathers of the church and the great medieval doctors and the early modern doctors on on how this plays out. I know Aquinas's view better than others because I tend to be in the Thomistic tradition, and Aquinas's view is that in the natural law there are the primary precepts and the secondary precepts. The primary precepts everybody knows, and there's no excuse. It's uh, don't murder, okay, yeah. don't lie, things like that. Um, you know, they're they're very kind of the biggies, right? You, you at least you should know. He does say they can. You can get really confused, or your conscience can get killed. I think we have a bit of conscience killing in our culture with respect to, let's say, abortion. A lot of people don't recognize that that's murder, or sometimes people go, "Yeah, it is murder, and that's yeah, great." Right? <laughs> they think it's okay, but in any event, um, those would be the primary precepts. The secondary precepts are derivative; they kind of derive from that. Uh, I think examples that Aquinas gives, and like maybe not be exactly accurate here. I think one example he gives is a matter of. Um, uh, other people's property. So with, let's say, Vikings or early barbarians right, right, right before right. their yeah, conversion to Christianity, yeah, yeah he, he mentions this in the Summa, like that they had kind of institutionalized 
the idea that you would go fight another city or town and take their stuff. And it's not, you know, it's stealing, right? It would be theft, but um, it's a a matter of a secondary precept because under certain conditions, you could appropriate somebody else's property uh, without committing theft. So it's a very difficult question. Aquinas will say, and he says this in his uh, early work, which is a commentary on, we talked about this in another episode, uh, Peter Lombard's Sentences, right? That's a, a medieval work of theology, and Aquinas is commenting on that. You see this in the Summa Theologiae, but in the supplement, which is where you know Aquinas didn't finish the, the, the text, and his students, after his death, compiled the rest of the Summa from the sentence commentary. And in it, he says, look, uh, uh, polygamy is against the natural law on the level of a secondary precept. That's a, it, it doesn't violate the goods of marriage, which are... Uh, right, staying together forever, indissolubility. Proles, fides, right. and sacramentum. Right. right, indissolubility, offspring having babies and being faithful to one another. Uh, in, in, uh, you could say it doesn't violate that, but that's kind yeah. of crazy. If you have more than one wife or husband, okay, in this case it's wives, polygamy, um, not polyandry, you have more than one wife, then you can be faithful to, I'm remaining faithful to all five or 10 or 200 of them, like Solomon, right? Well, really? I mean, I guess, but but you're going to have some necessarily, by necessity, shunned when you're attending to one yeah, and right. not the others. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's fidelity, but not quite. It really kind of erodes that. So the, the, the bottom line is, um, uh, well... <laughs> The bottom line is it's complicated, and there's no consensus on this. Uh, right, for 2,000 years, polygamy has been out. There's no question about it. Luther, after he left the Catholic Church, tried to argue uh, that the mayor of a given town in Germany could have two wives based on the Old Testament stuff. And, of course, the church eschews that, rejects that, shuns it. Uh, polygamy has been consistently rejected since the time of Christ, if not a little bit earlier. But... Uh, but how do you grapple with God permitting it in the Old Testament? It's just there's no definitive church teaching on it. So it's worth digging into. We don't have time to do it now, but just to dig into the different positions on it over time. Newadvent.org has uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia. That's one very good resource. You could start looking into it there, do a search under marriage or polygamy, and then they will usually spell out where who you right. could read. Aquinas, Augustine, Jerome, Chrysostom, Etc. Bonaventure, uh, and see the different positions on this. But it, all of this is to say, even though we don't have the answer definitively from the church in a dogmatic statement, doesn't mean there are not intrinsically immoral and intrinsically good acts. There are. We, it's not always easy to determine what they are. Slavery uh, is another one, but with slavery, they think that's easier, okay? Just to give us a sense of completion. I sure. know we, we don't have a lot of time, but, but with slavery, um, it's a little easier. There are different kinds of slavery. Uh, some kinds of slavery are slavery where, where you have the, the intrinsically immoral perspective that I own another human being and that I can sell them for profit, um, I can purchase them with money, and that is intrinsically immoral. That's the kind of slavery we had in this country, and that's uh, the kind we have to reject as a mortal sin. Uh, humans are not for sale. We are not property to be possessed by another human. There's other kinds of slavery, though, some of which are voluntary and others of which are a punishment. Right. Now, I'm not saying this is good or whatever. I'm not trying to... But, you know, in, in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, with uh, the book Philemon, Paul's letter uh, to, uh, to Philemon, 
Onesimus the slave, yeah. right? He wants Philemon to set him free, okay? Um, not sell him, set him free, okay? So, uh, uh, but Paul says you could, you know, justly keep him. We don't know how Philemon got hold of Onesimus right. as a slave, but 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 there is indentured right. servitude, which is called slavery in Latin. Or, sorry, in Greek, in the Greek scripture in the Septuagint, it's a doula or doulos. A doulos is a uh, is a male servant, or sometimes translated servant, sometimes slave. And a doula is a female servant or slave. Okay, uh, or or a, a diakonos, right? Or diakona, okay, a male or female servant or handmaid or whatever. So. Um, it's easy to see, it should be easier to see that if someone commits himself to be the other person's servant freely, that's not a sin. It's like Sam and Frodo in Lord of the Rings, right? Sam is Frodo's servant, you know, and he calls him master. He calls him master. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, the, the, the sin then would be interpersonal, like, right? I mean, like, it depends on the yes. relationship they have, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and then a little more controversial these days, of course, but it wasn't controversial in the history of the church, is that slavery could be a ju- conceived as a just punishment uh, for uh, injustices committed by a group of people or their nation. So Jeez. a nation would come in and enslave a bunch of people, uh, defeat another nation and enslave for a time. And they always had kind of a sunset clause. They'd be enslaved for a period of time, then set free. Not sold, right? but set free. I'm not saying that's moral, Dave. Okay? Right. No, no, I don't I know. know. I know. I know. But, but the tradition is that that was seen as okay. I think the way the tradition, the way things are developing now is that no form of slavery except maybe the voluntary kind is seen as acceptable, and that's fine too. Uh, so the slavery is easier. I think polygamy is very hard. I think divorce is easier. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, but I, this I, is a fantastic question. Yeah. So, I feel like I just talked too much. I, I apologize, David. No, no, this is a really good question because it's something that comes up regularly for, like, DREs, for priests, for stuff like that. So it is important to, you know, to to at least explore it and, and the, the finer points yeah, yeah. of it to get through it. So I, you, you know, the, where, where the real riches here, the real important thing we can't miss, the real meat, the real essence here is this. God is not arbitrary. Right. That the laws are not there because he wants it. Just do what I want because I want it. The laws are there because he loves us. The laws relate to intrinsically good and intrinsically evil issues. Avoid the intrinsically evil and pursue the intrinsic good actions. Why? Because So in other words, God prohibits sin not only because it offends him, but because he loves us and sin objectively hurts us. Frank Sheed, the guy whose book we take our title of our podcast from, Theology Insanity, we call it Theology Insanity, but Frank Sheed says, look, uh, he prohibits sin because it not only offends him, but when you commit sin, even if you don't realize it, it is going to hurt you. It hurts, sin is against human nature. It hurts your body and or your psyche and or your emotions and especially your soul and the souls and bodies and emotions of other people as well. So avoid sin, not just because he said so, uh, but because he loves you so much, it's going to hurt you. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. He wants you to have life. That's the key, I think, catechetically, right? And in parish work, that's the big takeaway, is to make sure people are clear on this. God's not an arbitrary jerk. Uh, the laws are there not to control us, but to guide us to the path of life, of, of, of real fulfillment. Yeah, I think also we have to at least give mention to the fact that you can take a minimalist r- approach to the law. You know, like the, there's the spirit of the law, and you can fulfill it. You can fulfill a law better 
or worse, you know. And I think that that's important that the just people in the Old Testament were good people, even by our standards, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Um, Not just externally, but in their heart. Yeah, you know, loving, loving God, and really, in the end, as the Lord does so well, summarize it. It's loving God and loving others. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. The law is love God and love others. Yeah, that's great. Well, let me remind you, July 14th, we're going to have our live episode. Uh, we want uh, to get a lot of people on there. I have plenty of questions to run through. Uh, July 14th at 8.15 p.m., and we'll get that information out to you, how to sign up and everything like that. As always, you can email us anytime at questions at theologyandinsanity.com. That's questions at theologyandinsanity.com. And finally, uh, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and gave us a rating there. Uh, That would be great. Maybe even left a comment. It really helps us to get the podcast out there. So thank you so much for listening this week. Thanks for being here, Mike. This was great. And God bless uh, you, Dave. It's always great talking with you, man. You as well. God bless you all. We'll be praying for you. Pray for us. Amen.